you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. I'm A. Martinez. Thanks for joining us today. All right, we're less than a week away from the grand reopening of the state on June 15th, but there is still a whole lot of confusion about masks. Now, that was compounded last night after California's Workplace Safety Agency suggested it might move to allow vaccinated employees to go without face coverings while on the job. So what's the deal? For some clarity, we're going to turn now to KPCC health reporter Jackie Fortier. Jackie, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. Now, before we get into uh, what the California Division of Occupational Safety and Health Administration said yesterday, let's set the record straight for all of us Angelinos. In what situations uh, must we continue to wear a mask? Yeah, so there are going to be some places where masks will be required after June 15th, regardless of vaccination status. Uh, that includes public transit, uh, indoor school classes and daycares, in healthcare and correctional facilities, and in places like homeless shelters and cooling centers. And that's because all of those are considered high transmission areas. Yeah, and all those areas make a lot of sense to wear a mask. And so in what situations do we know for sure we don't have to wear one? So after June 15th, fully vaccinated people will be allowed to do almost everything they did pre-pandemic without wearing a mask, like grocery shopping or going to a bar or to the gym. But unvaccinated people will need to wear masks in indoor settings. Uh, people will not need to wear masks outdoors, however. Will not need to wear a mask outdoors. All right. Now, but businesses are, are you know, are still a little bit of a gray area first uh, to customers. Uh, you know, and I think we've talked about this, Jackie. I'm still going to wear a mask in, in a lot of situations uh, for a lot mm -hmm. of other reasons. But for everyone else, what should people keep in mind when going into, a, say, a retail store or a market or maybe some other indoor business space? Well, I would keep a mask handy. Um, a business can require everyone to wear a mask if they want to, regardless of vaccination status. So I would have one in my pocket. Unless uh, the business requires it, vaccinated people will not need to wear a mask in most indoor settings, including businesses as the customer. Unvaccinated people will still need to wear a mask indoors, but businesses have some leeway in determining a customer's vaccination status, including using the honor system. So if I walk into a store without a mask after June 15th, that's considered a, quote, self-attestation, according to the state health department, mm. that I am fully vaccinated. So no one's going to be checking at the door. The honor system. Oh, mm -hmm. if, they, if there was any honor in that system, we wouldn't need it, right? <laughs> All right, now to uh, employees. Uh, Cal OSHA, the agency that sets uh, workplace safety rules, has wavered on this issue. So what is the current rule for employees? Yeah, wavered is the right word. Um, it's actually pretty straightforward. The current rules for employees will stay in place. So all workers will need to wear a mask regardless of vaccination status, and they will need to maintain physical distancing, among other restrictions. Now, we heard, though, last night that could change. So what's the latest? Yeah. So initially, there were laxer workplace safety rules that were supposed to um, take effect on June 15th. But last night, the state's Workplace Safety Standards Board, which is known as Cal OSHA, voted to repeal the mask policy that it passed just last week. 
in the meeting that I sat through after it's changed its mind twice. So that means that the stricter rules that I just talked about will stay in place for now. The board will consider modifying the policy yet again on June 17th with changes, and that could include allowing fully vaccinated workers to go without a mask, and that would go into effect near the end of June. All right, now, it's Gavin. Very confusing. Yeah, well, absolutely. It's absolutely confusing. Now, Gavin Newsom still holds uh, emergency powers over all of mm-hmm. this. So, Jackie, could he say override what Kalosha eventually settles on? Yeah, he could. And he's getting a lot of pressure from business leaders to use that executive order power. Um, the workplace board's, you know, more restrictive approach has really put Newsom in an awkward position. He's battling, you know, a pending recall election. And so far, he's been reluctant to override the board. Jackie, one more thing, because whenever I think of stories like this one where there has been confusion because one agency says one thing, but then another says something else and then everyone gets frustrated. I mean, how much do you think we all have to keep in mind that no one has ever gone through anything like this before and we're all doing the best we can. I was actually talking to a psychiatrist about this yesterday, uh, and he told me that we've experienced a shared trauma and that it takes time to heal from that and really to come to terms to it. And his advice was to just listen to each other and basically cut everybody a break. I mean, it's been hard. And when it comes down to mask wearing, I mean, really, it's just a piece of piece of cloth over your face. I'm going to keep one handy and, you know, especially cut essential workers a lot of slack because they've been through a lot. The mask as not a political tool, but just a piece of cloth on your face. That That's actually what it really is. That's Jackie Fortier, <laughs> KPCC's health business reporter. Uh, Jackie, thanks a lot. Thanks. As discussed, California is on the brink of a full reopening after more than a year of coronavirus-related shutdowns. As we head toward this magic date of June 15th, we've been checking in with communities around the county to see how small businesses have weathered the pandemic. Today, we visit Van Nuys in the San Fernando Valley. KPCC's Itzi Quintanilla takes us there. The San Fernando Valley was hit hard by the coronavirus pandemic. At one point, Van Nuys was one of five neighborhoods in the valley with the highest infection rates. On Van Nuys Boulevard, a street lined with small businesses, car dealerships, and a swap meet, business owners have felt the effects. At the beginning, I thought that it was the end of the world, you know. That's Nestor Lobo, owner of the bike shop called Retro Express Bicycles on the corner of Victory and Van Nuys Boulevard. Like most businesses, Nestor closed his doors to the public at the onset of the pandemic. But eventually, he got word that bicycle shops were classified as essential businesses in L.A. He reopened along with safety protocols, but the threat of the virus remained. Going to work and exposing yourself to a type of virus that you don't know what kind of effect it's going to do in your body. It was like like a lottery game, you know, you were going to work and putting your life at risk. Even though we followed, you know, we were disinfecting and cleaning, you know, it was very, very difficult to the point that I got sick and I was I would had to close the shop for a few days. Nestor eventually recovered from COVID-19 and he says business slowly picked up as restrictions relaxed and more and more people decided to pick up cycling during the pandemic. But right next door at a Honduran restaurant called Baleadas y Mas, owner Lorena McCollum has a different story. We signed the lease for this place on uh, March, I believe it was March 5th. 2020. Then, obviously, after we signed the lease, a few weeks later, the whole world was shut down. 
Governor Gavin Newsom issued the statewide stay-at-home order on March 19, 2020. And since then, Lorena says the restaurant has struggled to get any financial help. We have not qualified because we don't have a long-standing history. So it's been really hard on us and we're pretty much behind with rent because we have, we're just not making it, you know. Lorena says her restaurant has been offering takeout and outdoor dining. But despite a recent uptick in customers, she only has just enough to pay the chef and overhead. About a block away, Veronica Andrade, the co-owner of the Salvadorian restaurant El Cafetal, describes the first day of shutdown. She says it felt like a bomb dropped on everyone. Sales for the decade-old restaurant dropped about 90 to 95 percent. In the beginning, she says it was just her and her husband working in the restaurant, making about one to two hundred dollars a day. Veronica says that amount was not enough for rent, bills, much less for employees. And as for financial help from the federal government, she says the restaurant didn't qualify at first for one reason or another. But this year, with the help from their bookkeeper, they were able to fill out the applications and receive a PPP loan. But it's been hard. Veronica says a lot of customers who are used to dining in were bothered by their initial takeout policy. And when the restaurant opened their patio for outdoor dining, she says a lot of people didn't want to eat outside. And many didn't want to follow the rules, like wearing a mask, and would treat employees badly for requesting it. But as difficult as it's been, Veronica says she knows of many businesses that had to shut down permanently. So she's thankful for the folks who've supported restaurants like her own during the pandemic. And now, with vaccinations and extended hours, Veronica says she feels like the restaurant is on a good path. As long as there's enough money for bills, rent, and employees. Other business owners in Van Nuys shared a similar sentiment. Grateful to still be around, each taking it, day by day. I'm Itzi Quintania. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.
Back now with more Take 2 on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm e. Martinez. There's been a lot of angst about schools reopening in the fall. A lot of families are demanding their kids be in a classroom all day, five days a week, and it appears that's where things are headed across most public school districts for those who want that. The thing is, not everybody wants that. There are still concerns about the virus, but there's other issues that have come up during this year of Zoom school. Parents, especially black parents, found their kids faced less bullying and other microaggressions this past year and actually got more support from teachers while being online. These feelings, which we've seen expressed by countless exchanges on social media over the last several months, were underscored by a survey this week from the advocacy group Speak Up. Of 500 Los Angeles Unified Parents surveyed, 96 were black. And of that number, a little less than half of them said they did not send their kids back to school this spring because they were, quote, concerned about bullying, racism, and low academic standards for black children at school. We reached out to some of the mothers who were surveyed to ask them about their experiences, and this is what we heard. She wanted a composition book with 100 pages. Well, I, I got I got them at Walmart and had 70 pages, you know. Do you know that she failed my child? I was like, well, what is this disruptive behavior? And she's like, well, I don't like how he slouches in his seat. I actually have this in writing. Key like how he sits in his seat. He slouches in his seat, and somehow that behavior is disruptive to her entire class. You have to have a, a vision beyond what they're giving, and especially in the city. American students aren't allowed to be children. In the academic system, the expectations for African-American students is very different than the rest of the student population. I'm a property owner. That is my local school. That is a school my property tax, which is expensive, goes to pay for that school. And my child will not be coming here anymore. I didn't respond. I am a very involved parent. I volunteer on field trips. I've been on one of her field trips in which I had witnessed the behavior of her students, profanity, aggressive, you know, like out-of-line disruptive behavior, which was not at all at any point addressed by her, um, which I brought to her attention. So I'm like, mm, if you allow this behavior, but you're saying that my son is a problem because of how he sits in his this is not acceptable. That was Chantel Hunter Ma, Alberta Brinson Moore, and Tanisha Hall. Now, to help us better understand the implications of all this, I'm joined by UCLA professor Tyrone Howard, who studies the educational experience of African American students. Uh, professor, welcome back. Thank you for having me. All right, now this uh, survey only included parents in uh, LA Unified School District, but uh, it is not unique to LAUSD, is it? Unfortunately, it's not. And as I listen, and to those parents speaking, it was difficult to digest, but but it's all too real. For Black parents across this country, they face these acts of discrimination, exclusion, racial microaggressions. And I think uh, the survey by Speak Up really being, brings to better better light how these issues really impact Black students in some really unique ways. And, and one more thing on this. I mean, is this unique to public education or wondering how widespread these feelings might be across other educational systems? 
No, it's not unique to public education, unfortunately. It's in private schools. It's in rural schools. It's in urban schools. It's in suburban schools. I think it speaks to a a, a widespread degree of anti-Black racism that exists in our largest society, and schools are not are not immune from that, sadly. Now, in that Speak Up survey, 24% of Latino families uh, said they felt similarly about uh, LAUSD having low academic standards for their kids. Uh, tell us about how those low standards manifest themselves, and, and why is that the case? Well, you know, I think there's a tendency for very well-intentioned teachers to do really harmful things. And by that, what I mean is that there's a sense that because students might be language learners or because students might be poor or because students might be black, that I can't hold those expectations for those students as high. So I lower standards. And when we lower standards, that means we tend to feel sorry for students. And we feel sorry for students. We don't challenge them with the kind of rigor and depth and complexity that we know students are able to rise up to if they have the proper support and the proper expectations. So attitudes, beliefs, and expectations are everything. And the research has bared this out for a long time. When teachers believe that students can't succeed, more times than not, they do. And I got to think, Professor, that once that attitude or that mindset persists year after year after year as a teacher, when you get a a whole new crop of students, you're already thinking that already for the entire class. And, and And that's how you go about your job. And this is the danger because not only do those, do those attitudes begin to become even more reified in the minds of teachers, but for black students who have had year in, year in, year in of teachers who have these low expectations and certain kinds of deficit beliefs, they can begin to internalize those beliefs as well and think, well, this is who I must be because teachers have treated me like this for five, six, seven years. So it's a lose-lose for both students and for teachers. Now, there's been this stereotype of the black student as a troublemaker and a student that maybe needs to be dealt with with a heavier hand. Where does that come from and what does it look like in a classroom setting? Yeah, this is this historically goes back to the way that black people, black bodies have always been seen as in need of greater policing, greater surveillance, greater punishment, if you will. And schools are no different. When you look at the suspension and expulsion data in Los Angeles Unified, we find that black children are suspended at the rate five times higher than white students and oftentimes for nonviolent, highly subjective offenses. So we know that black children are more likely to be adultified. They're more likely to be seen as disrespectful and defiant. And oftentimes we see that black children are engaging in some of the same age-appropriate behavior uh, as other students are, but but they're oftentimes punished in a much more harsh uh, and more punitive way. And they can be sent out of the classroom, right, for long periods of time and, and be almost cut off, isolated from, from everyone else. I mean, what kind of an impact does, does isolation in the classroom or maybe outside of the classroom have on students of color? So it has a major impact on students of color. If you look at the research by Daniel Lowson, he looks at the hundreds of thousands of instructional hours that young people of color lose out on when they're sent out of the classroom, when they're suspended, when they're expelled. And those are hours that we can't make up. So when we look at some of the academic outcomes being what they are, we have to look at the correlation that may exist between numbers of hours of instructional time loss and academic outcomes. Very clear link here that when you're not in classrooms, you can't learn. When you're not in Uh, close proximity to your students, uh, to your peers, you can't learn. And that's why we have to think about more restorative approaches as opposed to punitive approaches. You mentioned earlier this word adultification, uh, Professor, Um, and and it's something that uh, I think some people have been hearing about more and more lately. And one of the mothers in the tape that we played earlier said that, quote, uh, African-American students aren't allowed to be children. Tell us more about adultification and what it means and what are its implications. So one of my colleagues at UCLA, Kimberly Crenshaw, has written about this. She says for black girls, for example, uh, they're assumed to be larger than they are. They're assumed to be older than they are. So you may have eight 
nine, 10-year-old girls who are oftentimes assumed to be 12, 13, 14 years old based on body type or based on just overall maturation. And that's unfair because these young people are children and they deserve to be children. So what happens is that if we see a child through the lens of being 12 or 13 years old, when that child is only eight or nine years old, we treat them differently. We talk to them differently. We have different kinds of expectations that are not based on their actual ages, but based on their perceived ages. So therefore, young Black children and young Brown children aren't allowed to be able to be normal or typical third or fourth graders. They're assumed to be eighth and ninth graders. And that's just an unfair set of expectations to put on children. And you know, I can't help but remember in the past year and a half, Professor, and you tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure I've seen videos of campus police uh, body, body slamming young black girls. I, and I, I kind of imagine that part of that is what you just mentioned, that they're seen as older or just, you know, different. No doubt. Not only have we seen videos of black children being body slammed by, you know, school resource officers or police officers, but we've seen young children as young as five and six years old being handcuffed, uh, being oh, yeah, put yeah. into the back of police cars. And that's just not the way we treat children. I think we, we tend to do that because we think, and the, and the uh, body of research has bared this out, we think that black people and other people of color have higher threshold for pain, have higher threshold for, for, for you know, physical abuse. So we don't seem to think that they feel to the same degree as other children do. And that's, it's, it's a mindset shift that we've got to begin to attack, that if people see children as being adults when they're not adults, uh, the entire way that they engage with them is oftentimes uh, difficult. And here's the key thing. Children pick up on it. And we wonder why there's such a sort of a disconnect between certain children and adults, because the children know that they're being held to a different standard, an unfair standard, a standard that sees them as being less than in terms of intellectual capacity, but being more than when it comes to actual age. We're talking with UCLA professor Tyrone Howard. Now, according to the Speak Up survey, many parents of color felt their kids did better with remote learning and, and hope that that's going to be an option moving forward. It appears it will be at LAUSD. Uh, you and I have talked about this before, but why is it important that this option be maintained, be still available for families? Because if we're honest, we have to recognize that schools were not always serving all students well prior to pandemic. And Black children in particular uh, did not always experience schools in the ways that their peers did. And the, the survey from Speak Up speaks to this, is that, you know, young Black children oftentimes feel less connected to their schools. They are more likely to be bullied. And they oftentimes feel like the adults who are in schools with them don't respect them and don't connect them to connect with them to the same degree. So I think what it speaks to is a real need to recognize that for many Black students and many Brown students as well, schools were just not the most hospitable places for them. And I would think if if teachers and schools are seeing tangible differences in a student's engagement, if they're if they're doing better, if they're feeling more confident, you would think that you'd want to have that as an option, right? In other words, like it, this is working, let's find a way to keep it. Yeah, that's what's important here because we can't use a one-size-fits-all approach. You know, as much as this uh, pandemic has been challenging, what we have learned from an education standpoint is that remote learning works for a lot of students. Uh, there are students who suffer from anxiety. There are students who suffer from, you know, uh, just, just different kinds of disorders when it comes to being in person around adults or being around their peers. And if we see that kids have higher levels of engagement, higher levels of effort, higher levels of interest, that should continue to be a viable option for students who are thriving in that particular matter. So we have to be flexible. We have to be nimble. I think we have to be open to the idea that children learn in different ways and we can't try to force them all into one particular way of learning. 
Yeah, and over the pandemic, parents, I think, got a really good look at the curriculum their students were learning, uh, you know, along. And, and we heard about parents supplementing their kids' education, whether that be with a more robust civil rights curriculum or maybe more community college courses. Uh, nothing that's uh, that new. But what does it say about the school system that so many parents of color still feel the need to, to maybe look outside of the resources provided by their local school? Yeah, I think it speaks to a long, unfortunate history where many communities of color have felt like schools have not always adequately served their children well. And so I think what pandemic has done is given it's given parents and caregivers an opportunity to get a firsthand glimpse and a firsthand look at the co- the caliber of education that their children are receiving. And I think many parents and caregivers are doing the thing that schools have said they wanted for a long time. They're engaged. They say, okay, I think we can add on. I think we can supplement. I think we can enhance what our kids are not getting from school. So schools have said for years, we want greater parent engagement. And now we're getting it. It just may not look the way that schools want it to look. But I think that's still a win-win because students are winning. That means that parents are winning. And at the end of the day, I think schools will win too, because we realize we have to begin to rethink the way we do education. One more thing really quick. We heard from LAUSD that there's going to be more resources in the fall, more mental health counselors, but what do schools everywhere need to do to convince parents that they take these criticisms seriously and and that in-person learning is safe for children of color? Really quick, about 20 seconds if you can. Sure. I think that we have to listen to parents. We have to listen to young people. I think schools need to do a better job of collecting data from those that they serve, the People who show up every single day, young people have opinions and perspectives. Parents have opinions and perspectives. If we listen, 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 and let those voices inform our decision making, we'll be in a much better place. That's UCLA education professor Tyrone Howard. Thank you very much. Thank you. seven states on the Colorado River may have to cut back water, but not everyone agrees on how. From Coloradans who blame others for the crisis. There continues to be a look upstream to solve a problem that we did not create. To farmers who may lose their livelihoods. We don't want to cut equal with everybody else. Will they reach a deal in time? Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Back now with more Take 2 on 89.3 KPCC and most places you get your podcast, Sammy Martinez. In our ongoing series, Pushed Out, we've been looking at the link between domestic violence and women's homelessness. It's been estimated that almost half of unhoused women in L.A. are in this situation because of such abuse. Take Two's Julia Paskin reports on how the social services system often forces survivors into homelessness and the effort to stop that cycle. For decades, the specific needs of homeless women have been left out of policy making. There weren't even women's shelters until the 1970s. 
It's ironic, as many of the first homeless shelters in the country were created by churches for people in need, many of which were women fleeing abuse in their homes. While homeless programs have now grown into a patchwork of different groups, strategic initiatives for survivors forced into homelessness have been largely absent. Elizabeth Eastland recalls a day at work reading through hundreds of pages of recommendations and finding sparse mention of domestic violence. One of the homeless initiatives at the very end literally said, and consider the needs of survivors. <laughs> and it was like, okay. Eastland has long worked with unsheltered survivors, and in the last decade, new data has been published revealing what she'd known all along, that domestic violence is the leading reason women become homeless. But homelessness and domestic violence services have historically been siloed from one another. And yet it's still pretty challenging when I hear policymakers who feel that domestic violence has its own money, so why do we need housing funding? With new data came some momentum. So five years ago, Eastland co-founded L.A.'s first coalition of homeless and domestic violence services, bringing them together. It's also working to address the problem survivors experience inside shelters. For safety reasons, many require residents to hand over their cell phones, restrict their movement, quit their jobs so their abusers can't track them. Sometimes they're even required to live apart from their children. That's what happened to Tanika Drake, who couldn't find housing after escaping an abusive relationship. She's a veteran, so she went through the VA. But to get into a shelter, she could only take two of her children. And I have four. So I had to sacrifice keeping my two kids that have special needs with my family while I enrolled myself into this program. She stayed there for five months before she could qualify for housing assistance. The coalition is trying to persuade shelters to change those kinds of requirements. For example, instead of seizing a phone, they encourage shelters to teach residents how to turn off their GPS locator so they can't be tracked by an abuser. Amy Turk, who co-leads the coalition with Eastland, says their campaign for more humane policies is driven by what's called trauma-informed care. It's really coming from a perspective of thinking not what's wrong with you, but what happened to you. When you shift your thinking in that way, then suddenly you're less apt to blame an individual for their circumstance and more apt to just kind of understand where they're coming from. Another challenge for survivors is navigating the many groups offering separate services. Some shelters, for instance, will only admit women who have experienced violence in the last 30 days, while other organizations can only help with a security deposit. It means survivors have to enter an exhausting maze of different providers. And Tanika Drake says that's hard to do when recovering from trauma. It's a very broken system. The only way that you get anything done is you have to make it happen. These organizations... True enough, they exist, they're here, beautiful. But in order to have the linkage, you, the person going through the challenge, you have to connect the dots. They don't connect the dots for you. But there's another approach that may prevent women from having to enter such an overwhelming system in the first place. Historically, domestic violence groups focus on removing a victim from the home. And sometimes that is necessary for their safety. But advocates say providers shouldn't assume they always know the best way to help survivors. Instead of forcing them into shelters, Eve Sheedy from the L.A. County Domestic Violence Council says one-time grants are proven to stop the financial domino effect that leads to homelessness. Whether it be that first and last month's rent, being able to repair your car, things that people may not connect to what the needs are coming out of an abusive relationship, If an emergency grant and coordinated services had been available to Tanika Drake at the right time, it may have prevented her from having to live in a homeless shelter without two of her children. 
The hope is that by streamlining the system and bringing in more funding, in the future, survivors won't have to become unhoused when seeking safety from their abusers. I'm Julia Paskin. And Julia will join us tomorrow to talk about the takeaways of her series, Pushed Out, how domestic violence became the number one cause of women's homelessness in L.A. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com events. See you there.